0: If you want to know the definition of nervous, it's singing Bill Gaither songs while standing next to him. In fact, I noticed that he didn't have a worship folder, and as we started to sing that first song of his, I started to hand my worship folder to him, then I realized he knew it by heart. Now, Dean Still asked me to preach today for one reason, and that is he knows I'm a big Bill Gaither fan. How big of a Bill Gaither fan am I? <laughs> it didn't take more than a minute to find this. It wasn't stored away in a box somewhere. So I'm going to ask
1: Bill Gaither if he will find
0: Yes. <laughs> the date is 1973, the year I got married. It was $3. <laughs> My wife would be here, but she's in Denver taking care of our grandkids today, and I'm sure she would love to be here to also meet. And we've met Bill Gaither once before at a concert, a homecoming concert in St. Cloud, Minnesota. We also drove down to Mankato through a hailstorm to go to one of his homecoming concerts. Yeah, you were there, that's right. <laughs> my my new car suffered $6,500 worth of damage to get to your concert. <laughs> well, I'm grateful to be asked to speak this morning, and it is a real privilege to be here and to meet Bill Gaither again, even though he doesn't know me from Adam, I consider him and many of the others on the Homecoming videos, all of which I own, by the way. Uh, dear friends and even family members, in a way, you know God is good. Am I right? About a week ago, I was struggling with this subject of my sermon today, and I was thinking, God, do should I really preach on certainty and doubt in that chapel? That morning, I got an email from a total stranger, which is fairly common. I get them a lot, but she asked me just one week before today's chapel, about her ridiculous need for certainty and how to handle that. And I said, thank you, God. There's my confirmation. The subject that you gave me to speak on today is the right one. My text today is from Proverbs 3.5, and we all know it by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your strength, with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. One of my favorite movies, one of the few that always makes me laugh out loud when I see it, is the 1991 Billy Crystal comedy classic City Slickers. One scene in that movie seems to form the central message of the comedy. Billy Crystal's character Mitch Robbins is about to turn 40, and I was 39 when I saw it that year. That's why I went to see it, I knew about that. On a crazy dude ranch adventure in the middle of his midlife crisis, Mitch meets crusty old cowboy Curly, played by Jack Palance. Curly gives Mitch some advice about the meaning of life. The taciturn Curly holds up one finger and explains to Mitch, life is all about one thing. He never tells Mitch what that one thing is, leaving it to him and to us to search for that one thing that will help him and us overcome the midlife crises we all face sooner or later and find renewed meaning and value in life. My question this morning is, what is the one thing that God expects of his people above all else? What if someone came to me and asked, what's the single most important element in Christian living? What is the center around which it all revolves? I suspect that many modern Christians have come to think that the golden ideal, the pinnacle, and the center of Christian life, the one thing around which everything else revolves is certainty. Certainty that God is real, that Jesus is Lord, and there is life beyond death. Something in our modern Christian culture has impressed on many Christians this felt need for certainty. When I was a child and even into my teen years, I believed that there were people, probably my spiritual mentors, youth evangelists, if no one else, who had found absolute certainty. Certainty that the Bible is God's word, that God is real and cares for us, and that in spite of all appearances... On some higher level, all is well because God is in control. I didn't have that certainty, but I certainly hoped and believed that my spiritual mentors had it. Now, the flip side of that spiritual myth about certainty is that doubt is a sure sign of spiritual weakness. In the form of Christian life I grew up in, there was almost nothing worse than doubt. I'll never forget one youth evangelist whose favorite phrase to us was, Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Now, without promoting doubt, my message to you today is that certainty can become an idol. And it certainly is not what God asks of us or expects from us. Let me give you two reasons why certainty is not what God expects from us. The first one comes from experience and the second one from theology. I've lived long enough to realize that many of the things I once believed I was certain about turned out to be wrong. When I was growing up, I was often told by my grandmother and great-grandmother about a great English manor house, my ancestral home, the stately Almstead Hall in Essex, England. I was led to believe that it was a large, ornate, historical, almost castle, and I pictured it as like Pemberley in Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. Then, a few years ago, I stumbled on a YouTube video of my ancestral home made by one of my distant relatives who got there before me. Imagine my dismay and chagrin to see that it is just an old, run-down farmhouse with chickens running around in the yard. Truly, experience tells us that our most cherished ideas can be wrong. We're not infallible. Only God is infallible. Belief in certainty can be a path to disillusionment. The second reason is more theological in nature, and that has to do with what God wants with us. What God wants with us is not certainty of the mind, but fellowship and communion. But you see, certainty is actually foreign to fellowship. To expect and even to hope for absolute certainty within a personal relationship of love is to violate the very nature of love and personal relationship. Certainty, you see, if it were possible, would give us mastery. We have mastery over that about which we are certain. The nature of fellowship demands risk. It demands commitment to the other as truly other, which requires courage and hope. And certainty excludes all that. Where does this rage, this obsession for certainty, come from? Why are so many of us Christians obsessed with finding and possessing certainty? Well, it doesn't come from the gospel, but from the Enlightenment. Disillusioned with the risk of faith and the warring religious parties of the 17th century, philosopher René Descartes closed himself into a small stove-heated room one winter night in Germany, and decided to doubt everything that he could possibly doubt until he found one thing he could not doubt. Well, every student who's ever taken intro to philosophy knows what that one thing was. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Descartes believed that he could not doubt his own existence, and from that he developed a whole philosophy of certainty, including alleged certainty about God based on his own existence. Now, one pundit has said that Descartes never met a Buddhist, and that may be true. But it's quite a leap from being certain about one's own existence to certainty about God. But modernity is what has bequeathed to us this felt need for certainty, even about God. The Christian prophet of Denmark, Søren Kierkegaard, rejected the Enlightenment obsession with certainty as a form of idolatry and taught us that Christianity is not about mastery over, certainly not about certainty, but about faith. And he called it the leap of faith, by which he meant into the arms of God. For him, as for Abraham and Paul, faith in God is risk, not security through certainty. But doubt is not the only alternative to certainty. Some misguided Christians, making the mistake of idolizing doubt, once they've discovered the myth of certainty, throw out trust with certainty. As God's people, we are called neither to doubt nor to certainty, but to trust. Often, however, we are like the city fathers of the English town of Windsor, another place in England I hope to get to. It's on my bucket list. In 1690, the city fathers commissioned famed architect Christopher Wren to design and build their new guild hall like a city hall. Wren was famous throughout England and the world for St. Paul's Cathedral in London with its almost miraculous barrel vault ceiling unsupported by middle pillars. The city fathers planned to use the ground floor of their new guild hall as an open-air farmer's market. And the second floor above it would be their town meeting room where they, the the city fathers, would sit and make their decisions. So they wanted that first floor, the ground floor, to be open-sided with no walls. Wren presented the city fathers with his plan. It included a large, airy ground floor with several pillars on the sides holding up the second floor, but no pillars in the middle to obstruct the view from the center. The city fathers rejected Wren's design, arguing that the second floor could not be supported without several pillars in the middle. Wren could not convince them of his ingenious design, so he eventually gave in and built the guild hall with four large central pillars in the middle of the ground floor. Many years later, when the ceiling of the ground floor needed cleaning... Workmen built scaffolds and climbed up to the tops of the four added pillars. Much to their astonishment, they saw that Wren's added pillars stopped a quarter of an inch below the ceiling. (laughs) They supported nothing. Some have called these Wren's deceptive pillars, and I hope to see them someday. But I'm told that later, Windsor City Fathers actually added filler between the tops of the pillars and the ceiling because they still didn't trust the strength of Wren's design after all those years. Like the city fathers of Windsor, we often crave security, and for us, it comes in the hope for certainty. But even our most certain beliefs do not actually support our relationship with God, because what God wants is not our security in certainty, but trust in him in spite of uncertainty. Straining under the weight of uncertainty, we tend to believe there must be some magical talisman or pillars that will actually catapult our minds and hearts into this realm of certainty. Maybe it's a seminary class or an apologetics conference or some ecstatic spiritual experience. But that's a fantasy and one that can erode and corrode and corrupt our relationship with God. Some years ago, I taught a course on Christian apologetics at a college in Minnesota, and the main textbook that I chose was by a friend named Wynne Corduan, who teaches at Taylor University in Indiana, an evangelical university. The title of the book, which is really a good book, is Reasonable Faith. In it, Corduan, an astute philosopher and Christian apologist, rejected absolute certainty in favor of reasonable faith. But a few years later, his publisher, Southern Baptist-related Broadman Holman Press, changed the title of the book from Reasonable Faith to No Doubt About It. This is, I suggest, a symbol of the all-too-common evangelical Christian myth of absolute certainty, attainable through either reason or spiritual experience or both. What I want to tell you this morning is that certainty is not that one thing of Curley's. The golden goal and pinnacle and center of true Christian spirituality and the obsessive search for certainty can actually be damaging to your relationship with God. So what is the one thing that God expects of us? I believe it is simply trust. If God came among us today and had only one thing to say to us, I believe it would be trust in me. Now, this may be simple and even obvious. It may sound Sunday schoolish to you, and I'm not trying to be captain obvious here this morning. The problem is, though, that we often confuse trust in God with strong belief in doctrines or even achievement of certainty about God. And my whole message to you this morning is that trust is on a whole different plane than either doubt or certainty. And when Jesus told his disciples, believe in me, he did not mean pull yourselves up by your mental and spiritual bootstraps and achieve certainty about me. He meant trust in me. You see, Peter's real test of his relationship with Jesus was not a series of doctrinal questions or the strength of his mental certainty. It was whether he could trust Jesus to keep him on top of the water. And as long as he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting him, like Jesus, he could walk on water. What made him sink was not doubt about a doctrine, but taking his eyes off Jesus and ceasing to trust him. Both doubt and certainty are mental states. They have to do with the mind, and while the mind is important, of course, a good gift from God to be used rightly, it's not the seat of spiritual life. The seat of spiritual life is the heart, the inner person, the core of your dispositions and loves. The heart is also the seat and the center of your will. A person does what the person loves. Fellowship comes from the heart more than from the mind, and God wants our trust from the heart more than cognitive certainty. The search for certainty in spiritual matters is a poor substitute for the risk of fellowship which requires only trust. In fact, it's possible to think that you've achieved certainty and miss the trust necessary for true fellowship with God. In 1860, daredevil Charles Blondin, known as the Great Blondin, became famous the world over by walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Eventually, to prove his great prowess, he pushed a wheelbarrow Over the falls, on the tightrope, as an admiring crowd watched and cheered. After returning to the side where he began, Blondin asked the crowd if they believed he could push a man across the falls in the wheelbarrow. One man in particular shouted his confidence and his certainty that, yes, that would be easy for Blondin. Blondin pointed at the man and said, get in. Whereupon the man quickly disappeared through the crowd. Blondin's fan was theoretically, mentally certain of Blondin's prowess, but he lacked the practical courage to trust Blondin's skill. True faith, you see, is not theoretical mental certainty or a strong belief in propositions, as good as that can be. It's the practical courage to put your life in God's hands, trusting him for your security. My message this morning that one thing in Christian life around which everything else revolves is trust raises inevitable questions such as, why trust God? Trust God for what? And what are the benefits of trusting God? Well, first of all, trust God because God has shown himself worthy of our trust. And if that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what will. Thank you. God's steadfast love for his people demonstrated conclusively in the Exodus and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is more than enough to justify trust in him. But also, God has shown himself faithful to us by forgiving us, giving us peace and joy and hope in spite of life's circumstances. When I was a kid growing up in church, we had testimony time something I fear we think we've outgrown in many of our contemporary Baptists and Evangelical churches. But the stories of God's faithfulness convincingly told by people in my church bolstered my trust in God until I found God faithful in my own times of crisis. And if you struggle with trusting God, what you need is a close personal relationship with Jesus, which comes through the Holy Spirit, You need to get down on your face and ask God to show you his faithfulness, but be ready because that usually happens in the middle of a crisis. Second, trust God for security, guidance, and blessing in your life and on your ministry. But don't expect to feel or see something tangible. The guidance and the blessing is usually noticed retrospectively after it's happened. My own life has had many of what I have come to call God's detours. I'll mention only one. Years ago, I returned from Germany where I studied with Wolfhard Pannenberg, a German theologian, and my year studying with him was provided by God miraculously. But upon returning to the United States, I had no job. I was unemployed and actually homeless, although a good friend let us live in the apartment of her, in the basement apartment of her house. Eventually, God left me with only one option— take an offered position for very little pay. In fact, I didn't know what the pay was going to be until I already started teaching, and it was less than one could live on then, at Oral Roberts University. God closed all other doors and left that one open. It was a very unpleasant two years, filled with struggles of all kinds. I felt like the proverbial fish out of water, and I asked God many times why he took me through that place. In that time, recently I had the privilege of spending a whole day with Adam Hamilton, pastor of the largest Methodist church in the United States, 22,000-member Church of the Resurrection in suburban Kansas City. And Adam reminded me that he was in two of my first classes at Oral Roberts University many years ago and said that I was instrumental in his theological and spiritual journey. I can now look back on those two difficult years and know them as God's detours. He brought me through them and made good of them. As you face into your future in ministry, expect detours now and then and trust God in them. Trust God to do what in them? Third, one of the benefits of trusting God is believing that God will bring something good out of even, even the seemingly most terrible circumstances. If I may paraphrase Paul, all of life's circumstances can work for good for those who trust God in them. A major benefit and a blessing is genuine hope, proper confidence, blessed assurance that God can make something beautiful, something good out of our lives even when they're confused and broken. One turning point in my own spiritual and theological journey in life came as I watched and listened to Bill Gaither sing one of his own compositions on a homecoming video. During a brief time of testimony, during the taping, several homecoming friends, gospel musicians, shared their struggles with doubt, what Martin Luther called his frequent Anfechtungen, attacks of spiritual anxiety. It was one of the most honest few minutes of Christian testimony I have ever heard. One shared his questioning of God when he was diagnosed with leukemia. Another one told of his occasional moods of depression. As an elderly person, he faced his own inevitable demise. Then Bill sat at the piano and sang this song that so beautifully expresses my message to you this morning.
1: help thou my unbelief I take the finite risk of trusting into the unknown trusting all the while I long so much to feel the warmth that others seem to know But should I, should I never feel a thing, I claim Him even so. belief I walk into the unknown trusting all the while I walk into the unknown trusting Through it all, sing it. Through it all, I've learned to trust. I've learned to trust in Jesus. Learn to trust in God. more time. little.